Hey listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Cavalry Audio. On May 10th, 2009, Rodrigo Rosenberg Marsano woke up early, around 7 o'clock. It was a bright, fresh Sunday morning in Guatemala City, the capital of Guatemala. It was Mother's Day. That morning, Rosenberg woke up early because he had a lot on his mind. He was in the middle of the biggest, most consequential case of his career, and he needed to clear his head. Rodrigo Rosenberg was a prominent corporate lawyer, a wealthy member of the elite class. He had an apartment in Zone 14, an opulent neighborhood where diplomats and heirs to colonial coffee fortunes live in heavily guarded high-rises. At 48 years old, Rosenberg was still fit and healthy, still in his prime. And that morning, a few minutes after eight, he put his headphones on, queued up a Santana song on his iPod, and set off on a bike ride. At 10 minutes past eight, he was only a block away from his apartment building, heading down a service road, when it happened. The first bullet entered his back, exiting out the left side of his stomach. The next two shots hit the left side of his face, on the cheek. The fourth bullet was probably the one that killed him. It entered from underneath his jaw, ripped through his eye, and burst out through his left temple. His body collapsed onto a grass embankment on the side of the road. Then, for good measure, the killer placed the barrel of his 9mm to the center of Rosenberg's forehead and fired at point-blank range. Rodrigo Rosenberg was dead. Murdered. 6,498. That's how many homicides Guatemala recorded in 2009, giving the Central American country one of the highest per capita murder rates in the world. Meaning, it wasn't that unusual to see someone gunned down in the middle of a street in broad daylight. But the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg was different. Hell, it wasn't just different. It was different on steroids and then dipped in barbecue sauce. And within 48 hours, it would plunge the entire nation of Guatemala into total chaos. This is a story about a murder, about how one murder exploded into a political firestorm. It's about the international team of investigators tasked with solving the crime and unraveling the Byzantine mystery behind it the shocking twists and turns of which would involve the most powerful people in Guatemala, including the president himself. This is a story about power, about secrets and lies, about the craziest, most baffling political conspiracy ever. I know that sounds like a bold statement, but trust me, you've never come across anything like this. Imagine Oliver Stone sipping on ayahuasca tea while going full Pizzagate on YouTube, 
That's the level we're going to reach here. But whenever I think about the Rosenberg case, I always think about the man himself, his state of mind. And I always come back to the same question. The morning he was murdered, right before he died, what was he thinking? As he rode his bike, sunshine on his face, music playing in his ears, what was going through his head? Was he asking himself questions like, how did this happen? How did it come to this? Could I have done something differently? Should I keep going? When that first bullet hit him in the back, as his body went numb and the light began to fade, maybe he was asking himself the same question the whole world would soon be asking. Who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg? From Cavalry Audio and executive producer Oscar Isaac, I'm Edgar Castillo, and this is The Rosenberg Case. You're listening to Episode 1, The Lawyer. If you truly want to understand who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg and why, you have to understand the world into which he was born. I'm talking about Guatemala, one of the most beautiful and most violent countries in the world. Have you ever heard of the ancient Maya? It is spelled M-A-Y-A. These people are descendants of the Maya Indians and are said to be the oldest civilized people in the Western Hemisphere. Guatemala is a country that exists somewhere between the old ways of indigenous Mayan culture and the modern sensibilities of American-style capitalism. It's a country plagued by violence, racism, corruption, political turmoil, and extreme poverty. Rodrigo Rosenberg was born in 1960, just six years after the democratically elected government of President Jacobo Arbenz was overthrown by a coup d'etat planned and carried out by the CIA and the United Fruit Company. It was called Operation PB Success, and yeah, it's kind of a bonker story that we can't get into here, but you should definitely Google it. The toppling of the Guatemalan government in 1954 led to a series of right-wing military dictatorships and triggered a bloody 36-year civil war between the military and leftist rebel groups, a war that resulted in over 200,000 people dead and 70,000 disappeared. Oigan bien, señores. No aparece, aparecerán más asesinados en las orillas de las carreteras. Se irá a fusilar a quien esté en contra de la ley. That was General Rios Montt, who ruled Guatemala as a military dictator in 1982 and 83. He was responsible for a horrific counterinsurgency operation that functioned more like a genocide. Initially, the civil war was a struggle for land and labor rights, but eventually it exploded into an internecine internal conflict that devastated Guatemala 
until peace accords were finally reached in 1996. But although the war ended, life did not improve for the vast majority of the Guatemalan people, almost half of whom still live in impoverished conditions and suffer from chronic malnutrition, lack of education, and crippling income inequality. Data analysis shows that if not for remittances, which is money sent home by Guatemalans working abroad, Guatemala's poverty rate would be worse than what it was in 1954. Rodrigo Rosenberg, however, was lucky enough to be born on third base wearing silver cleats. Like many elite families in Guatemala, the Rosenbergs descended from European immigrants. His parents amassed a small fortune off of his mother's inheritance and his father's various business endeavors, including a chain of movie theaters. Rosenberg was educated at the best Guatemalan schools and earned master's degrees in law from both Cambridge and Harvard. In 1987, Rosenberg co-founded a prestigious corporate law firm that represented well-moneyed business interests. Pepsi-Cola was one of his major clients. So Rodrigo Rosenberg grew up rich and privileged. But that doesn't mean he was safe or insulated from the turmoil of the world around him. It's not an exaggeration to say that Rosenberg and his entire generation were born into blood and violence. It's always pending, it's always there in the air. There's always this feeling that something bad is gonna happen. And that's sort of what uh, we grew up with. That was my dad. His name is also Edgar. My parents grew up in Guatemala during the 70s, and they've got dozens of stories of family members and friends who were murdered by criminals or made to disappear by the government's secret police. Like most Guatemalan families, they've got dozens of stories of experiencing extreme violence firsthand, personally. Then I remember um, going to the School of Medicine and all of a sudden, you know, I see a bunch of students just running and I start hearing uh, people, you know, just screaming, saying, you know, the army's there, they have guns, they're shooting. And you hear the, the bullets, you know, flying, you know, you just run for your life. You know, I, I did not stop until I was like probably 10 blocks from the university. Then I stopped to catch my breath. So things like that happened. They were uh, very uh, often, and uh, it was not unusual to see uh, the police uh, and the guerrillas, you know, fighting. The violence during the Civil War impacted my parents in an even more direct way. They actually had to flee their home country because of something my father witnessed as a young medical student. In 1978, a group of soldiers looking for guerrilla fighters, went to a tiny indigenous village in rural Guatemala called Bansos. I was there as a uh, medical supervisor of the health center. It was a health center. We had a last year medical student. I was working for the university and I was supervising this, the last year medical student. 
And I was about 10 miles from there when they called me and they said something bad has happened in Panso. So I went back and the army had just massacred uh, women, pregnant women, you know, elderly people, children. And I, in the park, just in the park, central park of this little village, uh, there were like, I counted 27 people dead. And I took about 12 people that were still alive to the health center to see if we could save them, but they were just dying. There was nothing I could do for them. I took the names and their ages. I had one of the survivors walk with me all around the park and he told me the names and the ages of the people. And that's what I took back to Guatemala because I wanted to make sure that the truth of what had happened there would be known as opposed to just getting the, the story from the government, from the army. The military slaughtered over 100 Mayan peasants at Bansos. My father thinks the actual number is closer to 200. After he delivered his report to the dean of the medical school, his name got leaked and put on the list of a hit squad, forcing my father, my mother, and my older sister, just a baby at the time, to seek asylum in America. The massacre at Bansos was just one of the 626 massacres carried out by the Guatemalan military during the Civil War. Pretty rough stuff. This era in Guatemala was marked by an endemic kind of violence that pervaded every aspect of daily life, that touched everyone, including Rodrigo Rosenberg. When he was around 18 years old, Rosenberg's older brother, Bobby, was kidnapped for ransom, a common enough occurrence in those days. The children of wealthy families made good targets for a quick and dirty payout. It was a haphazard affair that never actually resulted in an exchange of money, because a short time later, with the help of a family friend named Luis Mendizabal, remember that name, Bobby's body was discovered off the side of a road just outside Guatemala City. He had been brutally murdered by his captors. Due mostly to police incompetence, no one was ever held responsible for the crime. And for his own protection, Rosenberg was quickly bundled off to study at Cambridge, despite not knowing a word of English. Soon, the Rosenberg family would suffer more tragedy. Rosenberg's two nephews were killed. His first wife's uncle was also murdered. Again, I need to reiterate that it wasn't out of the ordinary for one family to experience this level of violence. It was everywhere. You couldn't avoid or escape it. You could only hope to survive it. But the decades of harsh and corrupt dictatorial rule ended in 1985 when Guatemala transitioned to a constitutional republic. Followed by the end of the Civil War in 1996, Guatemala was supposed to have entered a new era of peace, free of tyrants, death squads, political assassinations, and massacres. But peace didn't come. 
modern violence in Guatemala is different than it was 40 years ago. Nowadays, violence isn't mandated and coordinated by the state and the military. Instead, the streets are plagued by an amorphous blob of criminality that is difficult to define, let alone contain. Mexican traffickers ship Colombian drugs through Guatemala on its way to the United States. Vicious youth gangs known as Maras run kidnapping and extortion schemes. Police authorities are either overwhelmed, incompetent, corrupt, or all of the above, leading to a culture of impunity. In 2009, 98% of all murders went unsolved and unpunished. 98%. But even more significantly, a kind of parallel power structure has developed. From the furnace of the Civil War emerged a variety of criminal organizations collectively known as the CIACS, C-I-A-C-S. Cuerpos Ilegales y Aparatos Clandestinos de Seguridad, or in English, Illegal Clandestine Security Apparatuses. The CIACS really get their start from the Guatemalan Civil War. Uh, they are remnants in many ways of that, that civil war. That was Stephen Dudley. He's a journalist and an author. He's also the co-founder and co-director of Insight Crime, a think tank focused on organized crime in Latin America. Basically, if you want to know about crime and corruption in Guatemala, this is your dude. Guatemala, of course, goes through this, you know, near half century period of conflict. And during that time period, these military parts of the military become incredibly powerful for obvious reasons. Um, many of them are connected to intelligence services, but but others over the years become entrenched in other parts of the government. The SEACs were informal networks put together by former high-ranking military officers, including ex-generals, as well as personnel from the intelligence agencies notorious for human rights abuses and assassinations. As Guatemala transitioned from military to civilian rule starting in the 80s, a lot of the same guys who committed these human rights abuses suddenly found themselves sidelined. So using their military and government connections, they transitioned into criminality and formed organizations with names straight out of a bad spy novel like The Brotherhood, The Syndicate, and The Officials of the Mountain. These organizations opened businesses and shell companies that worked directly with the Guatemalan government and other legitimate companies. But they were really just fronts, used to launder and embezzle money, traffic drugs and contraband, bribe politicians and judges, forge documents, facilitate black market adoptions, and offer hitman services. In the 80s and 90s, the SEACs were even rumored to have participated and or coordinated political assassinations and attempted coup d'etats. That's roughly what we, what we are calling 
the SEACs, this combination of illegal and legal businesses that emerge from these kind of military cogs of power um, that had grown up over the Civil War in Guatemala over a 50-year period. Think of the SEACs, these deeply entrenched, shadowy organizations, as the connective tissue that binds together the illicit activities of the criminal underworld and the official endeavors of Guatemalan government and industry, rendering the difference between the two essentially moot. We've got a term for a country where organized crime and the government have a symbiotic relationship. It's called a mafia state. The upshot is that Guatemala has long been and remains to this day one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Rampant street crime, venal businessmen, criminal cops, crooked politicians, it's everywhere. Everyone can see it. Everyone has experienced it in some form, including Rodrigo Rosenberg. The seemingly immutable fact of corruption in Guatemala infuriated him. Owing perhaps to his family's painful experiences, Rosenberg felt personally offended at what he perceived to be a hopeless state of affairs in his beloved home country. So, taking all that tragic history into account, it's easy to understand why, when our story begins in 2009, the entire country of Guatemala was a powder keg. The people were fed up, pissed off by pervasive corruption and collectively traumatized by a violent past. And they were ready to blow it all up. All they needed was a spark. Khalil Musa was starting to slow down. In 1949, the Lebanese immigrant had come to Guatemala as a skinny 17-year-old with practically nothing in his pockets. Now, at 76 years old, he was a short man, bald and bespectacled, his bronze skin weathered and webbed by time. He cursed like a sailor, but he also loved poetry and would often quote the lines and wisdom of the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. Musa was proud, stubborn, and fiercely charismatic. Over the decades, he had turned himself into a wealthy entrepreneur through hard work and sheer force of will, but a lifetime of labor had begun to take its toll. He felt old. Musa spent 12 years in San Marcos, a small city near the coast of the Pacific Ocean. He picked coffee beans alongside peasant laborers, taught himself Spanish, and established roots in his new adopted home. He met a girl, got married, had a daughter whom he named after his mother, Aziza. Then he got into the textile business, opening up a factory in Guatemala City called Lacetex. He worked hard and prospered. He had another daughter, Marjorie, who quickly became the family favorite. Musa eventually became a wealthy and respected captain of industry, a pillar 
in the Guatemalan business community. He had a reputation for honesty and integrity. No small feat in a country where everybody seems to be on the take. In 2008, in the autumn of his life, Musa had begun the process of transitioning leadership of the Lacetex textile factory to his daughters, Aziza and Marjorie. After a recent diagnosis of vertigo, the old man had pared down his famously intense work schedule and started focusing on spending time with family, enjoying his grandchildren. Khalil Musa was happy. His family was happy. But all that was about to change. Le doy posesión del cargo de presidente de la República de Guatemala para el periodo constitucional 2008-2012. In 2008, Guatemala was in the midst of an historic upheaval. For the first time in 53 years, a liberal had won the presidency. After decades of strongman dictators and conservative presidents, a social democratic party called the National Unity of Hope rode a wave of populist fervor and swept into power. The liberals were led by Álvaro Colom, a bookish, rail-thin bureaucrat who looked more like a high school vice principal than a master politician. But despite his Ichabod Crane ears and wet mop of a personality, Colom now occupied the highest seat of power in the presidential palace. Colom never cut a dignified or dashing figure. He had a slight speech impediment. And there was nothing about his background or career that screamed paradigm-shifting leadership. He came from money. A deeply religious man, Colom seriously considered becoming a priest at one point. After getting a degree in industrial engineering, Colom had some success on a variety of business deals, including going in on a factory with Luis Mendizabal. Rodrigo Rosenberg's longtime friend and mentor. Again, nothing special. But, supported by his canny and controversial wife, Sandra, we'll talk about her more later, Álvaro Colom laid the groundwork for his presidential run by serving as general director for the National Fund for Peace, or FONAPAS, to use the Spanish acronym. FONAPAS was a government program created in 1991 to invest in rural Guatemalan communities ravaged by the decades-long civil war. Under Colom's leadership, the program built schools, hospitals, community centers, sports facilities, and established food aid programs, among other social welfare initiatives. The political connections Colom was able to establish throughout Guatemala's rural areas doubled as a fundraising network and a system of political patronage. And this kind of back-scratching quid pro quo cronyism helped Colom create his own political party. After a failed run for president in 2003, Colom ran again in 2007 and won 52% of the popular vote, defeating a right-wing ex-general 
from the Conservative Party. The National Unity of Hope won 48 seats in Congress and managed to form a coalition that gave it control over the legislature. It was an incredibly violent campaign. Over 50 municipal and congressional candidates were killed. Colomb's campaign manager had three grenades thrown at his motorcade, almost killing him. In Guatemala, violence and politics go together like peaches and cream, but this campaign proved uniquely bloody. Still, despite the high levels of violence, for the first time in a very long time, Guatemala had a left-wing liberal government. We're going to fight for a unity of country. We're going to fight for harmony with indigenous peoples. Today is the first time that National Council of Elders are present at an inauguration ceremony. It's impossible to overstate how seismic of a shift this was in Guatemalan politics. Not only had a liberal ascended to the highest office in the land for the first time in two generations, but Colom had also marked a new path for winning national elections. For the first time ever, a candidate had won the presidency without winning the vote in Guatemala City. Knowing the business elite in the urban capital would never back him, Colom had focused on winning the peasants, farmers, and indigenous populations of Guatemala's vast countryside. Times were changing in Guatemala. Out with the old. There was a new president from a new party with new ideas and a new, perhaps enduring, coalition that could maintain power for decades to come. The only question was, would Colom be sucked into the same cycle of corruption that had plagued every single president and leader that came before? Would he succumb to the inexorable pressures of the Guatemalan mafia state? Which brings us to coffee. The unique flavor of Guatemalan coffee is due in part to the unique features of Guatemala's terrain and climate. Have you ever tried Guatemalan coffee? Let me tell you, it is freaking delicious. The best in the world for my money. Coffee accounts for approximately 40% of all agricultural exports in Guatemala, precisely because of its aforementioned deliciousness. From cultivation to transportation, the coffee industry employs roughly one-fourth of the 18 million people who live in Guatemala, many of them scraping by on less than minimum wage. So it makes sense that, fresh off of his monumental victory, one of President Colom's top priorities was to fight for the rights of the common man in the coffee industry. And his first target was the massively powerful National Coffee Association of Guatemala, or ANACAFE, a private organization that represents all coffee producers in the country. Colom wanted to protect the rights of small peasant producers 
and he wanted someone on Ana Cafe's board of directors that shared this goal. Enter Khalil Musa. Because of his history of working in the fields alongside peasant laborers, Musa was well known for sympathizing with small growers. Combined with his sterling reputation for integrity, Musa seemed like a perfect candidate to serve on the board of the Coffee Association and to champion labor and indigenous rights. Musa was approached by Gustavo Alejos, the powerful chief of staff to President Colom. Alejos was the president's right-hand man and one of the most powerful men in the new government. He was also a friend of the Musa family, having attended high school with Musa's daughter, Marjorie. By the way, the Guatemalan oligarchy is very small. Everybody knows everybody else. On behalf of the president, Alejos formally offered Musa a position on Ana Cafe's board of directors. For his part, the old man was eager to serve. Musa had a deep-seated passion for coffee cultivation. Some of his best memories were of toiling in the hot sun, picking beans by hand next to mine peasants all those years ago. He wanted to help if he could, but there was a catch. Gustavo Alejos also wanted Musa to serve on the board of the Rural Development Bank, known in Spanish as Ban Rural. Ban Rural is a quasi-public bank that provides funds for the rural and micro-enterprise sector across Guatemala. The bank slogan is, The Friend Who Helps You Grow. While it is a commercial bank, the Guatemalan government owns 30% of the bank's shares and therefore holds three seats on its board of directors. Even during his campaign, President Colom made no secret of the fact that he wanted to work closely with Ban Rural to enact his social policies. Now in office, Colom called Ban Rural the financial arm of his administration. The president placed his wife Sandra Colom the powerful first lady of Guatemala, in charge of a slew of social welfare programs and gave her free reign to work with Bandural in the administration of the programs and the money funding them. Although initially reluctant to tie himself so closely to the Coloms, Musa didn't want to pass up the opportunity to make one last difference for the country he loved so much he accepted positions on both boards. President Colom promptly signed the nominations, and all that was left was for Gustavo Alejos to send them off to the Ministry of Economy for final approval. For Khalil Musa, everything seemed to be in order. But he had no idea what was coming. Shortly after accepting the board nominations, Khalil Musa began to receive thinly veiled hints from powerful people that perhaps he should reconsider. Soon, those hints escalated from thinly veiled to not even veiled at all. A member of the board of Ana Cafe actually sent Musa a text message with a cryptic reference to a coffee producer 
whose plantation had recently burned to the ground. He started getting death threats. Apparently, the old man received a phone call that imparted a stark warning. If you accept the position at Ban Rural, you will suffer the consequences. The campaign against him culminated when Musa discovered that the president of Bandural, a longtime friend, had turned against him. The bank's president spoke to Musa directly and strongly encouraged him to pull his name from consideration for his own good. Musa was totally caught off guard. What was going on here? Why was the prospect of him sitting on the boards of the Coffee Association and the Rural Development Bank causing such consternation among men he considered colleagues and friends? His family members, confidants, and legal counsel were all advising him to pull his name from consideration before the nominations were ratified. And so, by April of 2009, Exhausted by the threats and squabbling, feeling betrayed by his associates, Musa asked Chief of Staff Gustavo Aldejos to withdraw the nominations. He would not serve on the boards. Instead of putting up with politics and death threats, he would simply enjoy his retirement. Alejos agreed to pull the nominations and that was that. Musa believed the matter to be settled. But then, on April 14th, tragedy struck. It started off like any other normal day. Impeccably dressed as always, Musa left his stately home in Zone 14 at 6.30 a.m. on the dot and headed to the textile factory. After a good morning's work, Musa continued with his daily routine of going back home for lunch with his family. His daughter Aziza was usually the one who drove him home, but that day she was on a long distance call to Lebanon and so asked her sister to give the old man a ride. And so, at precisely 12.50, Musa and his daughter Marjorie headed towards her green station wagon in the factory's parking lot. Musa was carrying a manila envelope. He wanted to stop by his lawyer's office to drop off some papers after lunch. They headed down Avenida Petapa, a big, busy street dotted by street vendors hawking bootleg DVDs and children dressed as clowns performing for loose change. Five blocks away from the factory, they stopped at an intersection. A motorcycle zoomed up to the passenger side of the car. The rider hopped off, walked up to the window, and without warning, opened fire riddling the car with bullets. Musa was struck nine times. Marjorie, sitting behind the wheel, was only hit once. But the shot proved fatal, the bullet severing 
her aorta. No attempt to steal the car itself or any of the items within had been made. So there could be no doubt, this was murder. This was a hit job carried out by professional sicarios. All signs pointed to Musa as the objective. Someone wanted him dead. Marjorie, a lovely 42-year-old mother of two girls, was just collateral damage. The Musa family held the wake the following day. Hundreds of mourners gathered to pay their respects and celebrate the lives of Don Khalil and his daughter. Both were loved and immensely popular. Among the mourners was Khalil Musa's personal lawyer. This lawyer, a man with an ashen pallor who appeared especially rattled by the shocking tragedy, his name was Rodrigo Rosenberg. Rosenberg was devastated. He blamed himself for the murders. Musa had approached him almost immediately upon receiving the offer from Gustavo Alejos, seeking legal counsel on whether to join the boards of Anacafe and Ban Rural. Rosenberg warned Musa that the new Colom administration was full of vipers. He didn't have a high opinion of Gustavo Alejos in particular. Rosenberg believed Alejos was using his powerful position as chief of staff to steer government contracts to his own companies and those of his friends and cronies. Rosenberg advised Khalil Musa to decline the nominations, but not quickly or strenuously enough. If only he had pressed harder, if only he had taken the threats to his client's life more seriously, Perhaps Musa and his daughter Marjorie might still be alive. Just a few days after the funeral, Rosenberg received a call from Luis Mendizabal. Remember, this is the same guy who helped the Rosenberg family when their son Bobby was kidnapped. Using his connections in the police, Mendizabal had managed to obtain traffic camera video of the shooting. Rosenberg studied the grainy footage extensively, rewinding, pausing, zooming in frame by frame, trying to pick out a suspicious face or a license plate from amongst the pixels. The more he watched, the more he realized that this was no ordinary band of hitmen. The nature of the attack screamed not just a high level of experience and professionalism, but tactical efficiency. Rosenberg and Mendizabal believed the hitmen had either military or police training. It was possible, even likely, that they were currently serving as soldiers or cops, which would have made them expensive to hire, especially to take out a high-profile target like Khalil Musa. Later, Rosenberg heard from Musa's surviving daughter, Aziza, that Gustavo Alejos had paid her family a visit to offer his condolences. Apparently, Alejos said that what happened to her father and sister was a direct result of the old man's nomination to the board of directors of Ban Rural, the Rural Development Bank. What did he mean by that? Wasn't he the one who offered Musa the seat on the board? 
Alejos's curious comment only served to confirm Rosenberg's suspicions. There was a conspiracy at play, centered at the highest levels of Guatemalan finance. Someone at Ban Rural wanted Khalil Musa dead, most likely to cover up some sort of crime they feared Musa, a man known for his honesty and probity, would discover. And whatever crime that was, it had to have been something really bad. Otherwise, why make threats to drive him away from the board of directors? And why risk going to the lengths of having him murdered? Khalil Musa and his daughter were victims, and not just of murder. They were victims of a culture of impunity, of a corrupt system where you can't tell the difference between bankers and thieves, between politicians and assassins. Rosenberg had grown up in this world. He had seen and experienced its impact firsthand, personally. And like many Guatemalans, he was sick of it. The Musa murders were Rosenberg's breaking point. He was determined to discover the truth of what happened, consequences be damned. He wanted justice. He became a man on a mission, hell-bent on finding out who ordered the hit on Khalil Musa and how far up the conspiracy went. And so, he started probing, pulling on threads, asking questions. He started an investigation that would expose a conspiracy so vast and insidious, it would ultimately result in another murder, that of Rosenberg himself. But the part of this story that elevates it beyond your standard run-of-the-mill political assassination wasn't what Rosenberg's investigation uncovered. It was what he decided to do about it. Good afternoon. My name is Rodrigo Rosenberg Marzano. And unfortunately, if you are hearing or seeing this message, it means that I've been murdered. That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now ad-free. Trust me, you won't want to miss it.